from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and we have Nick Bryant with us today. He is the author of The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal, and the co-author of Confessions of a DC Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. He also has a new book coming out in a few months entitled The Truth About Watergate, A Tale of Extraordinary Lies and Liars. I have followed Nick's work for many years. In fact, I bought the Franklin scandal in November of 2011. Because of Nick's work, and also because of Peter Dell Scott's short but succinct writings on the subject, I was able to figure out what the Epstein thing was all about pretty much right away. So, with that endorsement taken care of, let's delve into this grim area of the clandestine world. Nick Bryant, it's great to have you here today. Well, I'm glad to be on your podcast, Aaron. So I followed your work for a long time. I was listening to interviews with you on different uh, podcasts back in the early 2010s, really when I first started studying all of these issues. Uh, and I thought that you were bringing some good uh, sober journalism and journalistic sort of techniques and academic techniques to like looking at a, these areas that are typically ignored by journalists and academics. And I think that you you do a great job of putting sexual blackmail at the heart of of many of the of these these terrible institutions. So, can you explain like what is the the, the significance of sexual blackmail, and when did you start to realize the scope of it in in our system of governance? Sexual blackmail is the oil of the machine. I first came across sexual blackmail. I started researching the Franklin scandal in 2002. And there was, it really hadn't been proven at that point, but it had been implied that there was blackmail involved with the Franklin network. And I saw that. And I also saw, I, the names of the people that were blackmailed were very substantial um, in the Franklin network. I'm talking cabinet level type people. And also with the Epstein network, we, we've seen the, the same thing. With the Franklin network, there were Reagan and Bush Sr. were very connected to that network, um, or to the, some of the people that ran that network. And with the Epstein network, you've got uh, both uh, Clinton and um, and Trump that were very connected to uh, the people that ran the Epstein network. And actually, Epstein provided Clinton with uh, girls or women, depending upon, while he was at the White House. Um, so what happens is I, I had a hard time understanding it initially. And then I finally, I got to a blackmail photographer. His name is uh, Rusty Nelson. And when I was, uh, and, and he was a blackmail photographer for the Franklin scandal or the people that were running the Franklin scandal. And I basically said to him, how does this work? And he said, once you're compromised, it's like you're on a yacht and it's a beautiful day. And the sea is like glass, and you can have anything on the yacht that you want. But if you decide to get off the yacht, the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drown. And what I've seen is people that are compromised, actually, it, it helps their career tremendously. 
um, if they're compromised, because then they're they're brought in to the yacht. They're on the yacht, and uh, people on the yacht are making deals with each other. Right. This is uh, this applies, I think, to the sexual blackmail stuff, and it also applies to other areas where, if you are involved with the sordid, most criminal, overtly criminal aspects of the state, you and you are useful to the state, you can get promoted. Like um, Colin Powell, his initial entree into, I think, greater success was his covering up, helping to cover up the My Lai massacre. Uh, this is just kind of a recurring thing in our, in our system. I'll give you a couple of examples of... Uh, Dennis Hastert was Speaker of the House between uh, 1999 and 2006, I believe, and he was constitutionally the third most powerful man in the country. And he specialized in strong-arming people to vote the way that he wanted them to vote. He, was, uh, he wasn't a guy that spared a lot of quarter or spared no quarter uh, when it came to marshalling people to vote the way that he wanted them to vote. And he had been a pederast going back at least 40 years. So... I believe that the fact that I believe that Dennis Hastert was compromised and Sibel Edmonds, uh, the FBI knew about Hastert because of uh, whistle, the FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds talking about in a deposition that uh, Hastert went to a townhouse of ill repute near Chicago or in Chicago. So, and the FBI was aware of that. So how could Dennis Hastert not be compromised? Um, and that's an example of someone who, um, because of the fact that they were being blackmailed, their his career was meteoric, and 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 if you look at the things that he did, especially a strong arm for the uh, for that uh, uh, Iraq War, which um, looking back in retrospect, there was there were so many lies involved in in, in that war. And, and, and yeah, the, besides the lies about Al Qaeda and the weapons, the logic of it never made any sense to begin with. Because if you're saying that he had all these weapons programs, the only the main use for them would be as a deterrent, and so it, it was absurd from the beginning. On top of being overtly criminal, and also Barney Frank, who has a history of this type of thing, uh, they were he was a cheerleader for the war. Hastert was a cheerleader for the war. And these markers are called in. And, and how this works is <clears throat> people generally vote with their constituency. But occasionally a marker is called in and you have to vote this way. And I, I think that Barney Frank is a, is a good example of that because he is supposedly Mr. Liberal, uh, Mr. Peacemonger. But he went to bat very hard for the war and also the bailout, which seems to be counterintuitive to the uh, paragon of liberalism that uh, Barney Frank stood for. And these are examples of people that have been blackmailed. Um, and, and they're going to, as I said, they're going to vote with their constituency on most things, but occasionally markers are called in. And there's another guy I'd like to talk about is Larry Craig. He was in Washington, D.C. for nearly 25 years, first as a representative, 
from Idaho and then as a senator. And he was about as conservative uh, as, as they come, a, a family values kind of guy. Actually, he, he had the worst case or one of the worst uh, records of voting against gay rights of anyone in the Senate, maybe even the worst, I'm not sure. But he was a closeted homosexual. And I wrote a book called Confessions of a DC Madam with Henry Vincent, and he ran a gay escort service. And he was providing escorts to Larry Craig. And there was a film, a documentary called Outrage. And Kirby Dick was the, uh, the director of that film. And they found other people that were not affiliated with Henry, uh, Henry Vincent's escort service that were providing escorts through Barney Frank. So with Frank, he ultimately got busted trying to pick up a police officer or a vice officer in the Minnesota or the Minneapolis International Airport. And I guess, uh, and, and I'm actually from Minneapolis and I've been in that airport a number of times. And when someone, I, I guess when you're sitting in a stall and someone starts slapping their foot on the ground, that's like a, a signal that um, it, it, it works without pheromones. And, um, and, and Barney Frank uh, engaged, was going to engage a senator, a, a U.S. senator was going to engage in sex in a, in a bathroom, in a bathroom stall. Yeah, who, so, was the other, who was the other guy that got caught that way? There was uh, another senator who that happened to. Well, there's there's been a few, but I'm Barney or uh, Larry. The guy Craig that said the, he had the guy that said he had a wide stance. That, I don't know. I don't think that 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 wasn't Barney Frank. It was someone else. I'll, you remember uh, that? He was like, "Oh, I have a wide stance." That was his like a wide bathroom <laughs> toilet stance. Well, that's something that we should do some research on. Um, I'll, I'll Google it while, I, but but go ahead and you can tell me. Tell keep talking so, about Barney. Frank. But it's funny because I'm from Minneapolis and I was uh, I was in that airport once and um, going to the bathroom and someone started slapping their foot in the stall next to mine and I didn't understand the nomenclature of that. I I, I thought that they had some kind of neurological disorder. It, it, it was Larry Craig who was the wide stance guy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Larry. Okay. So how could Larry Craig not be blackmailed? Um, a kid, a, a high school student with a smartphone doing an after school project could have blackmailed Barney or Larry Craig. Um, and he was in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. I think the reason why he got busted was in Minneapolis was he went outside his net of protection. Yeah, because what in what happens in Washington D.C. stays in Washington D.C. at least on that type of a surge level. Yeah, yeah. So with somebody like Hastert, I mean, he would have had to have been. I mean, it's it's not like you would go as a wrestling coach, and and who has a predilection for you know sex with with boys, that you would decide to parlay that into becoming the speaker of the house of your own initiative like that, that would be, you know, and using your own craftiness, like how do you, I mean, maybe, you know, or maybe you don't know, but maybe you have some inkling. How did he, how do you think that he was identified as somebody who would be useful 
to these kind of actors? I mean, do you think he got busted and then they were like, well, this guy's a particular kind of like, you know, sociopath that we could we could make use of? Or how did that even happen? I don't know. I mean, I believe that people that are compromised are ultimately busted. Um, in the Franklin scandal, the two pedophilic pimps were uh, Lawrence E. King of Omaha and Craig Spence of Washington, D.C. And both had been in um, Southeast Asia during the, during the Vietnam War. King was in Thailand with a top security clearance, and Spence was an uh, ABC newscaster. <clears throat> so I believe, and, and, and they both came from uh, working class families. Um, but when they came back to the United States, both of them had a meteoric rise socioeconomically, and both got heavily plugged into the political machine. And I believe that they were probably compromised in Southeast Asia. And that enhanced their careers when they came back to the United States. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. And that gets into the, I guess, the Vietnam angle you get into and operations over there. It, it kind of connects in a strange way to Bill Colby and his involvement in the Franklin scandal. And then Bill Colby's former subordinate, John DeCamp, who was a, a figure in the in the Franklin scandal. Um, Don, John DeCamp wrote a book that is the, usually if you look on Amazon with your book, uh, it mentions like that this is the other big book on that particular scandal. Um, Actually, Amazon is sure to make that his book come up before my book. I've, I've noticed that. Probably. Yeah. Which is a, a very interesting uh, thing that we see, uh, we see a lot of um, today. The, God, the gods of algorithms. Yeah, the uh, what, well, we can. There's a there's an angle of this I want to explore a, a bit in a bit, but first I want to talk about Colby, um, and that is that Colby. How does Colby William Colby, this former CIA director, become involved in in Franklin and and what was his? Do you think how did his relationship with DeCamp impact the way that uh, either of those two men came to figure in the scandal? John DeCamp was a former. Nebraska state senator, and he was uh, he was the first guy to really blow the whistle on the Franklin scandal. There, there had been a Senate subcommittee that had formed to investigate Lawrence E. King's plundering of his the, the, the Franklin Credit Union, ergo, that's how it gets its name. And then, um, but then when they formed to investigate his $40 million plundering and the fact that he hadn't been audited in four years and federally insured credit unions are ought have to be audited every year. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a law. Um, and then when this subcommittee formed, uh, social services personnel came to them and said, Lawrence E. King is running a pedophile network. He's, he's flying kids around. There's, child pornography involved. And what had happened is um, some kids had come forward to social services personnel, and they had put together a package that they gave to both state and federal law enforcement, and they were simply ignored, simply ignored. And, um, and ultimately, when the uh, Franklin Committee was formed, they went to the senators, and the senators started looking into the child abuse allegations. 
and they hired a great private investigator. His name was Gary Caridori, and he died quite mysteriously. Um, I, I do believe that Gary Caridori and his son were murdered in a uh, his his plane crash, um, and I, I do believe that Caridori, he had, Caridori had been looking for evidence um, that would prove definitively that this pedophile network existed because as Gary Caridori was <clears throat> uncovering leads, the FBI was covering them pretty quickly. Anybody who dealt with Gary Caridori was heavily, heavily harassed by the FBI because the FBI was there to cover it all up. And <clears throat> Gary Caridori, um, I believe he was in Chicago with his son. He flew his Cessna to Chicago and he met... Uh, the aforementioned Rusty Nelson photographer who I talked about. And I believe that Rusty gave him some pictures. And <clears throat> Rusty is not the paragon of veracity. So um, it's difficult to go on just something that he said, but there's four people that corroborate that Caridori either found pictures or something very significant in um, Chicago. And when he was flying his, his plane back, to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, it mysteriously broke up in the middle of the air, and uh, and and it, and it was strewn for uh, throughout this whole cornfield, which is indicative that it most likely blew up. So that is the Franklin scandal, um, and the reason why it had to be covered up was Lawrence King was flying these kids to Washington D.C. and and other places. And Craig Spence, his partner in pedophilic pandering, had a had a very nice house um, that was fitted for audiovisual blackmail. Um, Craig Spence was a CIA asset, and if you indulged in anything illegal in Craig Spence's home, you were you were blackmailed. I mean that that's just the way it is. The second book I wrote on this uh, called Confessions of a DC Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. Henry Vincent's running this escort service and Craig Spence spends about $25,000 a month in mid-1980s dollars on escorts from his escort service. And he is sitting with Craig Spence and also Lawrence E. King and there's like a sugar bowl filled with Coke. And, and Spence was an individual. He was a sociopath that had seismic narcissism. But then he started asking Henry about his life and uh, where he went to school and where he grew up and asked him about how he ran his, uh, uh, his escort service. And Henry thought he was witnessing something miraculous right up there with the parting of the sea is Craig Spence actually being taking an a personal interest in him other than just doing business and um, to, to get uh, Henry's male hookers. So Henry gave Spence all this information um, and, and Spence started asking particular questions about him running his escort service. And then at a certain point, Spence gets up and he motions to Henry and he opens up a closet door and behind the closet door is a secret panel that opens up. And then there's a room with all these monitors 
and Craig Spence and Henry follows him and Craig Spence hits some buttons and there's Henry talking about his escort service and Craig Spence essentially said, I blackmail people for a living and consider yourself blackmailed. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a very negative uh, experience, uh, moment for, for Henry Vincent. Yeah, this, uh, this seems to be like a way to, I mean, if you're going to deal with this kind of a, if you're going to grapple with this, you would really want to declare some sort of amnesty for like some pretty bad people. But when you, when it comes down to it, the crimes of all of these, you know, people who are blackmailed are dwarfed by the actual blackmailers themselves. I mean, how would we even, how would we even grapple with this before I get back to Colby and, uh, before I get back to Colby and DeCamp, but how, how do you think that this issue could possibly be dealt with uh, if we were, if we were going to actually try to grapple with it, which I get, I know they have no intention of doing so, but still. Well, it's gotta be a groundswell grassroots movement from people like you and people like me. Jeffrey Epstein ran a pedophile network that was very similar to the pedophile network that I just talked about. Epstein's, homes were fitted for audiovisual blackmail. And he was blackmailing people for intelligence. And all these molested girls, no one has ever been indicted for molesting all these underage girls. I mean, other than Epstein and, and Maxwell, we know who they are. We know who a bunch of these, uh, these child molesters are. We know who were the procurers um, of young girls for these child molesters. We know, we, we know a lot of that. And America, it, sorry, sorry to interrupt here, but has it ever been offered like a, an explanation in the Maxwell hearings or any of the things around Epstein? I mean, to my knowledge, and I, I don't follow this closely, super closely because it's like sort of, it's just a part of my like bigger, you know, wheelhouse of state criminality. But was there ever a suggestion that it was done as a financial arrangement. I mean, Epstein had all this money, but nobody seems to, nobody is saying that the operation was a, it's like trafficking, but for what purpose? Like, is it, is it even suggested that it was to make money? Because it doesn't seem to be. No, Epstein didn't need money. He was, he had power of attorney over Les Wexner's estate and Les Wexner is a billionaire. So Epstein didn't want for money. This was purely a blackmail operation. Right. And, I mean, that and, seems so obvious. And, and and it also provided girls for people that were already on the yacht. So um, that's how it went down. But no one in the media has, and this is what I find mind-boggling, and it, and it shows how corrupt our media is. No one in the media has called for justice in the Epstein case. No one. And I wrote an article about Epstein that was published in the Sheer Post, and I called for justice, but I'm not aware of uh, really anybody else calling for justice in the mainstream media. So why is our media, why does our media have such moral turpitude? I mean, it could be that 90% of the media that are imbibed by Americans are owned by six corporations, and those six corporations could be taken down with the Sherman Antitrust uh, act. Um, so that's what happens when you've got so much information and uh, that's disseminated through so, so through so few corporations. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's pretty congruent with the way that I perceive these things, because if you, 
when you start to when you step back and look at the machinations of the clandestine apparatus within the U.S. government and its connections to you know organized crime and so on, which add more deniability, its connections to private intelligence outfits that have security clearances and so on, it's in a way all these things are connected. You can say that like, oh yeah, the JFK assassination and the media failures over that. Or the Air America heroin trafficking scandals, the Iran Contra cocaine, like all these super conspiratorial crimes of the clandestine state that never get adjudicated, they actually are related. And I, I have to believe, this is the, the thrust of my book, that it's really a function of, of capitalism and that you have concentrated so much wealth and power at the top of this project, which is capitalism plus global imperialism, that it and with a democratic veneer and because it's of the democratic veneer you have to do so much stuff secretly and so this creates the need for this kind of clandestinism and you're and so when you get crimes of a certain level they're almost they're less they're much less likely to ever be adjudicated i mean they just never are i don't believe that anyone was prosecuted for air america and what you're talking about with Iran-Contra, George Herbert Walker Bush pardoned everyone. He pardoned them even before they went to trial, um, which had, yeah. had had never been done before. Before he went to trial. I mean, it was Lair the Walsh guy said that it was obstruction of justice, and it's yes. pretty clear that it was. Lawrence Walsh was uh, very, very negative about Bush pardoning people before they even went to trial in the uh, Iran-Contra affair. And it's interesting because you see similar players like uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, Russ Baker makes a very good case that he was in the CIA and um, was in Dallas in November of 1963. And then he pops up and he's also part of Iran-Contra. Well, he and uh, Felix Rodriguez and Donald Gregg were the, were the fountainhead of Iran-Contra. They were the, the three guys that cooked it up. And then, of course, he ultimately was the prime mover of the war against uh, the, the first Gulf War against Saddam Hussein. So what happens, what I believe happens in, in these conspiratorial type criminal enterprises is that no one sits in a room and says, okay, we're going to do this and this and this. There's a, there's a bunch of players out there that can be counted on because they're malevolent and ethical eunuchs. And they can be brought into something like Iran-Contra, or they can be brought into an assassination they can be brought into a number of things. It's a series of nexuses. And that's where people, I mean, people call it the deep state, um, which has kind of been abused, a term that's been abused. I like to call it parapolitics. Yeah, that's the Peter Dale Scott term. And uh, it's, you know, the, the, the it's what I has my, my dissertation hashes all this out. So I could... Uh, if we go down that particular theoretical area that it would be here forever. But um, this, the clandestine, the amount of criminality that is used to maintain this whole system is really staggering. And uh, it involves people that do pop up in, in strange places back to William Colby. 
Um, do you think that was he called in to the to, to participate in the Franklin scandal and or in the the cover up and sort of adjudication of it? Was that was he called in because of John DeCamp in some way, or how did that end up playing out? Yes, John DeCamp and William Kobe went back to Vietnam, but William Kobe was head of the Phoenix program where we killed uh, God knows how many innocent people because they they say thirty thousand, but who who knows. The Vietnamese say 41,000. Um, so it's difficult to know, but John DeCamp was part of the Phoenix program and he kept in touch with Colby. And when Gary Caridori's plane blew up over Lee County, Illinois, <clears throat> the senators in the Franklin Committee hired William Colby to investigate what happened to Gary Caridori's plane. Why did it blow up over Lee County, Illinois? And this is kind of interesting. William Colby never made any public statements about it, but he told people that were affiliated with the Franklin Committee that Gary Caridori's plane was, in fact, sabotaged. And he was completely unwilling to say that publicly, but he said it to a number of people privately. Yeah, he is an interesting character, and uh, I've he was a person who gets, he helped to orchestrate the ouster of some very problematic CIA people, especially James Angleton. And part of that, he's probably the source for some of those leaks that, 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 have, that came to reveal the, you know, Seymour, Seymour Hersh's stories where um, Operation Chaos and other things get exposed and it leads to James Angleton's resignation. So, to, but to orchestrate it, he had to like reveal some sort of explosive information, and uh, this was at the time of Nixon's um, sort of feud with a uh, blood feud with the CIA, and uh, he'd put in Schlesinger first to dig up the family jewels, and Colby was in charge of that. That was actually Colby's project to be the person compiling all those violations, and then later he's running the CIA, and at some point, I guess it's under Gerald Ford. During the church committee, Kissinger and other people say, Colby's giving too much information. we got to replace him. So they replace him with uh, George H.W. Bush. And Colby goes on to be kind of a, a – he. it's it's a, very fascinating. He emerges in Franklin because he also emerges in uh, the Nugent Hand scandal. He's brought onto the board of directors, and it, it seems like he's in some sort of cleanup capacity perhaps or, or, or something because that's a whole other other strange – scandal later he helps um doug valentine to write the phoenix program you know which is a doug's pretty exhaustive book on on the phoenix program um do you think that he, what do you, do you think that he had some kind of attack of conscience because he's unique in in the history of all these the spooks of this era i, I find his his arc very interesting and he dies in a strange way he was also involved in gladio at the rome cia station as i understand so there's well, like he knew yeah. a lot of secrets and he dies a few years before 9-11. I mean, what, what do you think, what impact do you think these scan, various scandals had on his, his untimely death, which seems pretty clearly to be a murder? I believe, I mean, in Phoenix, William Kobe was the bad guy. And with Nugent Hand, he was also the bad guy. And in Italy, um, he was the bad guy. Uh, but I do believe that he had a conscience. Now, this is what's been told to me. I don't know if it's true or not. But um, William Colby, I've been told that William Colby had 
refound his faith in Catholicism. He was a Catholic. And that he was pretty cool with just about everything he did, except for he knew about how the CIA was involved with children. And according to my source, that's what he was going to do, was out the CIA. On its, the CIA was abusing children in MKUltra um, through the mind control programs, like Loretta Bender, a psychiatrist um, at uh, Bellevue, gave one child who was six years old LSD every day for like nine months. I mean, this is the kind of sadistic experimentation that was being done, and a lot of it was done on children. Uh, Loretta Bender is just one example. And I think that uh, with, with Colby, he knew about how children had been abused. And I believe that he also knew that children were being used to compromise politicians, too. And, I mean, he certainly knew that, that the Franklin scandal was about that. And I think, and, and he also, so he, <clears throat> he had a complex history of being a bad guy um, and doing bad things, but also helping Seymour Hirsch and Douglas Valentine. Um, so he did have a conscience. And during the church hearings, he made a lot of disclosures that Richard Helms never would have made. Um, Richard Helms just sat there stoically. And, uh, but William Colby thought that Americans should know. Yeah, that, that's what I recall. He, there's a few quotes from him where he's saying, where he's kind of getting to the heart of the matter, saying that, like, this, wh what, what role, how do we reconcile these practices with the democracy? It might be good if there was some disclosure because it would lead to a sort of a better outcome for a democracy. Like, he actually seemed to express sort of the heart of the matter in a way that's, that's very unusual for these people. So... That makes sense to me that William Colby had uh, had refound Catholicism and um, and looked over his career and wanted to definitely ensure that the the CIA stopped using children and that's what I understand and that would certainly get him killed. I mean, he died very mysteriously. He went canoeing in April. He wasn't feeling that good. Um, he was never seen. And then it was like around Cape, Cape Cod too. Yes, right? Yeah. Like, it, like, wouldn't it be freezing in April? Yeah, no, he was, uh, he would, he went canoeing in April and it was a cold night and he wasn't feeling well. And, um, <laughs> now his son makes a case for him committing suicide. Which but, son is that? Is that Eldridge? Yes. Now, that he guy, he's a, he's a right wing. Uh, he's like a hawk. He's like basically gonna, he's cheering on Armageddon in Ukraine. Now, if you've, if you've seen some of his stuff on, uh, on Twitter and such, he's a, he works for the U S foreign policy establishment. So, so he made a documentary where he made the argument that William Colby killed himself. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's a reasonable argument, but if you bring in all these other factors, you could definitely make an argument that, uh, William Colby was murdered. I mean, I look at it like this. This was the 1990s, and people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was an establishment guy, he was making the argument that you that we should really get rid of the CIA, that it was 
something for the Cold War, which I, I see the Cold War as totally unnecessary and more of a, a cover story for U.S. imperialism, that, that it, it needed the Cold War to function. But setting all that aside, um, you had in the 90s actual pressure from people within the establishment to, to consider, to weigh the va- value of the CIA. And uh, we know, you know, if you look at it now, they were kind of gearing, they were doing all these operations with like jihadis uh, and the Turkish, the Turkish connected networks that like people like Hastert were involved in that Sibel Edmonds, you know, showed us some uh, illuminated some of this by detailing what she uncovered as an FBI translator. But the, the clandestine state sort of was, who knows how much Clinton even had control of it during the nineties, but they were involved in all sorts of like jihadi operations and other things. And they were, and, and it, all of the, it was like they were laying groundwork for this push after nine 11 to uh, uh, expand the U S empire over the oil heartlands of the world. And Colby, if, if Colby, Colby had enough disclosures of the era to really discredit the CIA. And so I, I can see him being murdered for not just the the, the Franklin side, the Franklin stuff, but multiple, the fact that he multiple. would have been under yes. he would have been under so much surveillance that if he ever started to talk about these things or or give uh, the the you know any sort of inclination sense that or convey any sense that he had the inclination to talk about some of these these issues and 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 lead to scan which would lead to scandals for the CIA like they could have just killed him preemptively. I mean, given what they, what they had planned for the clandestine state of the United States in the coming years. He had been uh, viciously mugged in Washington, D.C. Um, years before his death. And I hate to extrapolate, but maybe that was a warning to him um, to, uh, to keep your mouth shut. There's a certain, uh, like the Italian organized crime entities have what's called a murta. They're a, they're a murta, uh, the, the vow of silence there. Murta has eroded over the years. But, uh, but I think it's still, a murta is um, still an integral part of the malignant corner of intelligence that, that we're talking about. Because everybody's compromised. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's codified, it's codified with, national, you know, state secrecy uh, legislation and various authorizations we don't even know about this, the government has likely uh, put into effect. And so it, it and so besides the fact that it goes that it's like actually put into the legal regime that takes it to another level than the omerta of the mafia, the national security mafia, even more vicious because they can put it into laws if they need to. But there's also the fact that these guys for their careers, like this, this being reliable men uh, who can keep the secrets is like a, a big privilege that they enjoy. And it's basically their whole social circle involves or revolves around being part of this in-group. And on, so there's all these incentives to keep the secrets. And then there's all these, you know, that you could get, they know that probably that they would be risk being killed if they revealed them. I mean, there's so much that holds all this, that glues all this together that people People who say that like there's no sort of longer term criminal enterprises or conspiracies that could exist because people talk all the time, that just isn't that just isn't the case. With uh, what, what you're saying, um, we, we can go back to the yacht analogy. Those people are on the yacht, yep, and they know if they decide to get off the yacht, they're going to drown. So, for some reason, and I haven't figured this out. I think it might have been greed. 
Um, Dennis Hastert was taken down. And he, he was obviously being blackmailed by a kid that he molested. And the FBI took him down for some kind of um, illegal money, something or another. Some kind of, whereas they uh, could have gone to the one his victim that was blackmailing him said, if you don't stop blackmailing Dennis Hastert, we're going to slap a, you know, a lot of indictments on you. Yeah. But, but the FBI chose to go after Hastert. So for some inexplicable reason that we do not know, Hastert decided to get off the yacht. Um, I think it might have been his greed. Or but, was he just kicked off because perhaps he had a it, he he was so just kind of overtly gauche that he was not going to that it was causing them some trouble that he needed to be kicked off the yacht. <laughs> I mean, maybe because he was he's such a he's a he's a guy who has no charisma at all. And uh, he the, the the Vanity Fair article written by David Rose talks about how he Sabelle Edmonds says that she discovered that in wire disc, wiretap discussions that he had been taking hundreds of thousand of dollars. Uh, like, I think I think it was it was at least tens of thousands of dollars in cash contributions from Turkish heroin connections. So and, and that was in Vanity Fair. Why wasn't he sued for libel? Why weren't they sued for libel if that was not true? And yet nothing came of that. And he was in Congress for years after that. So I he may bo- have been kicked off the yacht as well. He may have been so like over, there may have been so much out there that at some point they thought we got to just cut our losses with this guy. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 don't I have know. a hard time I believing mean, he wanted to get off the yacht is what I'm getting at. He had uh, done the bidding of his masters very effectively. Yeah. So I have no idea why he was uh, kicked off the yacht other than his greed. I, I think yeah. it's greed. Um, yeah. there, now, there, he could have stepped on someone's toes that he shouldn't have stepped on. Uh, he could have became too big for his britches, uh, like a Jeffrey Epstein. At this point, we don't know. Yeah. Have you ever heard, there's another guy in Congress who's from my home state and who's always been there whenever the, the, the deep state needed them or whatever you want to call it, whenever the empire needed them, um, and that's Lee Hamilton. Has he, has he ever come up in any of your, I, I know nothing about any of his weird proclivities, but he seems so clearly compromised, and he's the guy that they brought in to cover up, to help cover up Iran-Contra and the October surprise, and then later 9-11, he's one of the 9-11 commission co-chairs. And he's just this guy from Indiana that, like, it doesn't make any sense. So is he, did he ever come up in any of your investigations? And my sleuthing Hamilton has never come up. But, but here's the other side of that coin. There are people that are compromised, but then there are also people that are willing to sell their grandmother for money and power. Yeah. There are those two. I, I mean, I've seen those in the Franklin scandal, people that aren't uh, discernibly compromised, but they're, they, they want to go up that ladder. I mean, and they'll do anything they possibly can to go up that ladder. The, yeah, you, go, go ahead. ahead. There well, was, ha- uh, has, Hastert, Hastert is, does Hastert remind you a bit of like, you said he was good at twisting arms and such, which brings to mind, you know, LBJ, who's most famous for that, being a, a legislator who could, you know, the Johnson method. But but like but Johnson was connected to a guy who was kind of like an Epstein figure of his own day, Bobby Baker, uh, so, so this seems to go back quite a while. 
political sexual blackmail, we've had that forever. Um, there was a muckraking journalist who found out that Alexander Hamilton was having an affair with a, a married woman who was like 23 years old. Yeah, James Callender, right? Isn't that the guy's yes. name? And, and, and her husband started to blackmail Alexander Hamilton. And then a muckraking journalist came along and he wrote about it. And Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were, were foes. They, they did not like each other whatsoever. So this muckraking journalist thought that Jefferson, when he became president, would give him a position, and Jefferson opted not to. So he wrote about Jefferson having sex with one of his slaves, yeah. Sally Hemings. He wanted so, to be the postmaster, right? Wasn't it the postmaster? Yeah. He was like, you better make yes. me the postmaster. So we're not talking about something that's new. We're talking about something that's very, very old. But now we have uh, pinhole cameras, which enhances the ability to, to blackmail someone. Yeah, I'll take it back even further than that, which is if you study Chinese history, in Chinese sort of history slash folklore, there are four classic beauties of Chinese history. Uh, two of the four are, are basically honey trap type of characters. One of them is from the Warring States period. And she uh, basically she helped to seduce a, a leader and, and bring down his his side. And she was reportedly so, you know, stunningly beautiful that she was able to do this. Another one is a fictional character, but but based in a set in a in a historical time period that actually did happen. Uh, her name's like Diao Chan. And she was there to sort of as part of this love triangle between a powerful general and his his master. Uh, and she helps to bring bring him down. So the Chinese actually are, in many ways, related to like deep politics, are much more um, aware of these things. I mean, all the the court conspiracies and so on. These are kind of ingrained in the U.S. or in in, in Chinese culture and in Chinese consciousness. Whereas in the U.S., we have a we, we've in recent years. This really happens after World War II because America used to be a more conspiratorially inclined, you know, public. Uh, in its thinking. But after World War II, you have this like conspiracy theory taboo. So it's like Americans now are kind of uniquely aggressive against like uh, people that want to point out elite criminality, like they, they want to reject it right away. And I think that's a product of, again, these same forces manipulating uh, civil society, basically. The 1967 memo or dispatch from the CIA uh, so there were a lot of people that were questioning the Warren Commission because it sh it should have been questioned. But most Americans believe that JFK was killed uh, because of a conspiracy, and they didn't trust the uh, the Warren Commission. So in 1967, the CIA sent a dispatch to editors and publishers and God knows who else, saying that these people were conspiracy theorists and that conspiracy theory or, or conspiracy theorists should be uh, given a kind of a, a negative um, outlook. Um, yeah, they say so, they should be like dismissed as like wedded to their crazy theories yes. well, and that they're uh, all interested in making lots of money and that they're there, just There's a number of rationales. So, and at that point, 
major newspapers like the New York Times used conspiracy theory like once a year yeah. and the Washington Post like once a year. But then after that memo comes out, conspiracy theory is used exponentially. And now conspiracy theory is people just like it to default. To uh, There's a member of my family and I told him something. He's, uh, he's very conservative. And I told him something relatively negative about uh, the conservatives, about some conservative politicians. And he immediately Googled it because he was, he was experiencing cognitive dissonance and he had to, you know, he had, he had to quash that cognitive dissonance. And then he Googled it and then he said, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and, and what I told him was the truth. Yeah. And people... Uh, and, and I found this out with the Franklin scandal and also with Epstein. People have cognitive dissonance. I would pitch, when I started pitching the Franklin scandal to editors and publishers, um, as I've said before, it would, I, could, I, could, I, I could look at the machinations in their, that were going on in their mind through their eyes. And they were thinking, this is a horrible story. These children are getting molested with impunity, we need to help Nick Bryan. But then the Trump card came in. Nick Bryant is crazy. So we don't need to help him. And I can go home tonight and have dinner with my family. We can watch television, have a, have a serene, tranquil night. Everyone who I pitched in the mainstream media went with the latter. They just wrote me off as crazy because of the Franklin scandal. And there were people that told me that it possibly couldn't be going on now. And during that whole period where I was pitching the Franklin scandal, Epstein was pandering young girls to uh, powerful men. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the Epstein thing is so, is so undeniable, which when the Epstein thing happened, because I was already pretty well versed in like the, the work that you had done, it was pretty obvious to me from the beginning that that's what it was. That's the only, it's like, it's all totally bizarre and inexplicable unless you have that explanation, at which point it all makes perfect sense, sort of pretty much to the exclusion of any other possibility. And the media is just going to leave it out there like, well, we don't we can't make any sense of this. You know what to do. Don't be a conspiracy theorist. I was so um, forlorn about the way that our mainstream media handled Epstein. I really thought that if a Franklin happened in broad daylight in America um, with all the social media, that we would get to the bottom of it. And Americans would see that a huge part of our political process is done by blackmail. Um, but we never got that far. The media just shut down. And a good friend of mine worked at a major magazine in New York City. And his boss really didn't like him pitching Nick Bryant stories. <laughs> but um, he now we, we're talking about someone who is like the editor-in-chief of a major magazine. And she said to him, uh, Epstein wouldn't be compromised. I mean, how, how naive is that? And what's 
really makes it exponentially worse is that she is the editor-in-chief of a major magazine in the United States of America. Um, and she doesn't think that people get blackmailed. To me, that is mind-boggling. The denial that uh, people live in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, I think it's a function of power. And you can, it, it, the, the power of a civilization, the pinnacle of power can kind of determine what is and is not acceptable. And it can even make people believe ridiculous things. Like the, you can see this with many cases. You mentioned Epstein and just how untenable the 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 mainstream can you know view of that is. But there's you know with RussiaGate as well, all the the RussiaGate story fell apart. And but during that whole process, if you were saying that like there's no real there's no case here for these people, um, then you were actually called a conspiracy theorist yourself. Like if you didn't believe the conspiracy theory that they were putting out about Trump being you know, con- totally controlled by Russia, then you they would call you a conspiracy theorist because that's what it's come to mean for in this with the sort of establishment brain is that like, if you don't believe what the state says, then you're a conspiracy theorist. Even when the state is saying something that's a conspiracy, when the state is articulating a conspiracy like Russiagate, uh, if you don't believe that, then you're the conspiracy theorist. Like this is this is how they've turned it upside down. That uh, 1967 memo or dispatch, whoever wrote that should be getting major royalty. His family or her family should be getting major royalties on that. It was a, it was a, a game changer as far as uh, the CIA goes. Yeah. Now, let's talk about one conspiracy that you have gotten into. That is everybody. Nobody says it's not a conspiracy. Uh, that is Watergate. So how what how and when did you decide that Watergate would be the next thing you'd want to look into? Because I I myself wanted to just write about Watergate in passing in this longer historical section of my dissertation, and I got sucked into a kind of rabbit hole with this and spent the whole summer trying to make sense of it, and it was it was fascinating, but also kind of like this is taking me off. Of course, I'm gonna it's taking me longer to do this, but it's so good, I or interesting, I can't stop looking into it. But how, how did you come to uh, look into Watergate and decide to write a book on it because it comes out like I think next spring and I'm it should I'm really be coming out in a couple it. of months. The truth about Watergate: an extraordinary tale of lies and liars. When I jumped into Franklin, I eventually saw that there was a lot of blackmail going on, and that these honey traps were pretty prolific. And at the heart of Watergate is a CIA honey trap that was run by James McCord. And it ensnared some people that I was researching um, throughout Franklin and, and, and later. And that particular honey trap ultimately altered the trajectory of history. It's actually kind of amazing. And very few people know about it. Um, that that at the heart of Watergate was a CIA honey trap. Yeah, they have. I mean, it was first written about. I think it's mentioned in passing in maybe the a book by Lukacs, maybe one of the or, or Lucas. I can't remember the guy's name, but he. It's like there's a little bit mentioned in one part of it in his book on Watergate, which is gener- which is one of the sort of Bibles of Watergate, like more so than. All the president's men. Lucas, um, um, his book takes a very orthodox view. Yeah, 
but he does uh, mention but he does uh, mention but, this he does mention it yes yeah and then hogan really went farther with it uh you know elaborating on mccord's background and the and the office of security we did a couple episodes on this recently and we were planning to have we're, we still are ha- planning to have jim hogan and peter del scott on together to talk about secret agenda but uh peter was ha- we had to postpone because of peter and then jim took a trip to europe but this angle with the, the the sex the sex angle and the uh, McCord and the Office of Security. I mean, it looks like the Office of Security was sort of the head, what the HQ for some of the most uh, you know criminal enterprises of the of the intelligence community, and that the sexual blackmail part was a was a huge deal. Do you think that McCord was? I mean, do you come down in the book that McCord was actually trying to get arrested, or or what, what do you? What's oh, absolutely. Your, what's your stance on this? Absolutely. He was uh, doing everything he possibly could to get arrested. What happened was the uh, security guard at the Watergate was brain dead. I mean, if he had a, if, if if he had like fifty functioning neurons, he would have seen what was going on. Um, but McCord ultimately had to have his his crony and all of this uh, Albert Baldwin. Called the DC police, and so he would surely get busted. And no one really understands that either. That James McCord did everything in his power to get those burglars busted. Right, but this had the this had the um, it, it carried with it the possibility that the operations would were were more likely to be exposed by doing that. I argue in my in my book that McCord is also connected to the Doomsday Project or continuity of government operations, and that that and my I put it out there as sort of a, a hypothesis, working hypothesis or working theory, suggesting that the the people plotting this could have been higher, probably higher than McCord, had the idea that with the author with the powers that are vested in. For continuity of government in terms of stopping the potential disclosure of catastrophic, you know, leaks of U.S. crimes and so on, like what they probably did to Frank Olson, the murder of Frank Olson, where uh, James McCord was also involved, that this would have been a way to have leverage over Nixon because it happens in the months before the, the election. And then it was sort of a time bomb for Nixon. Like if he was really going to overhaul the national security state even more, which he looked to be doing and reform the CIA and he fires Helms and he wanted to restructure some more of these things, which he already had done some in his first term. Like these, he was going to essentially centralize control of the federal government in the hands of the president, which in itself isn't such a terrible thing, but I, but it was threatening to these people. And so I, I think part of it, my theory is that, that it was done in order to allow the use of, of COG, uh, prerogative to impact the way that that Nixon would be able to conduct his presidency. And they may not have planned to force him to resign initially, but like it grew to that point because for, for different reasons. I believe in, in my book, I show this Nixon wanted LBJ was a very corrupt politician, but he wanted the great society legacy. And Nixon was also a very corrupt politician, but he wanted to be known as the peacemaker. And he, shortly after he got into office, um, 
he issued, I think, National Security Memorandum 1 or something like that. It seems very innocuous. But what it says is the CIA, the Defense Department, and the State Department will have absolutely zero input on his major geopolitical moves. So on his first day of the presidency, he cut out the CIA, the military, and the State Department from what he was trying to do because he had once been a hawk. And he knew how entrenched the hawks were towards the communists. And he wanted to befriend the communists. He wanted to do strategic arm limitation talks with the Russians, which he did. Um, he opened up China, the reproachment of China. Um, so, And actually, he told the Russians that he was willing to give up Vietnam um, to further advance um, their strategic arm limitations talk and, and the uh, and, and the friendship. So, and he was doing this all clandestinely. Um, the Navy had, or, a, or so he so he thought, or so he thought. The Navy had a uh, top secret top secret communication system called SD One that he was using um, when he was talking to uh, the Russians and even possibly the Chinese. And what happened was there was the Moore Radford affair, where the chiefs of staff. Um, tried to, military chiefs of staff, tried to infiltrate the Nixon administration, or actually did infiltrate the Nixon administration. And, um, but ultimately, they were busted. And Nixon, the Nixon White House was able to uncover this espionage ring against Nixon in the White House, um, uncovered most of it. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't uncover uh, Alexander Haig's role. But, um, but after the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, failed in their espionage ring, then the CIA just started, I, I kind of, it's like Scarface in the final scene when all those Bolivian assassins um, converge on Scarface's home. That's how it was with the CIA people. They just started seeping into the Nixon administration. And I don't think they had an idea yet of how they were going to take down Nixon, but they wanted to know what Nixon was doing. And I think that the daily double for them was ultimately being able to take him down. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think it was, I think it was a rolling kind of a thing and that they did take steps. It was a probably some anti-detente group um, that was that, that, put McCord in jail and that, you know, Woodward is connected to these forces as well. Uh, he was a subordinate. He was a very close to Wellander, uh, who was also involved kind of like Wellander was above sort of Moore and Radford. Am I right about that in terms no, of Wellander like, was, the, uh, way this, was, the way well, it worked? Wellander was part of Moore Radford. Right. Um, Moore was the, uh, chief of staff, joint chief staff. And, um, um, Wellander was an admiral that was actually below him in okay. the uh, in the military pecking order. Yeah, so, but he so, was part of it, and and Woodward uh, worked for uh, Wellander. Um, he briefed he had, more, and also and Hague, and Hague too, right? And and Hague, although he he denies that, but he did he did brief Hague because he had to keep Hague quiet because although uh, Deep Throat is a composite, um, Hague was ultimately the one that gave Woodward and Bernstein the most damaging information. So what do you make of, of the, the other character in this who is tied to the sexual blackmail ring? 
through his through his wife um john dean what 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 have you come to to think about dean because i i see that he must you know i, I he seems to have been possibly compromised the whole affair with him and uh was it spencer bailey was that that guy's name uh, philip bailey philip bailey yeah philip bailey and uh his his that that the way that that call girl ring got busted and, and john dean snapped into action you know was this because he was somehow involved in that you know in that plot beforehand or was he trying to do damage control or what did you what did you come to conclude about that whole affair jim magruder was uh running the campaign to reelect the president. And he was kind of a, a weak-willed individual. And John Dean and G. Gordon Liddy, I think, just trampled on him. And according to Jeb Magruder, it was John Dean that was part of the preemptive strike on, on the Watergate. Um, Liddy did not want to go into the Watergate. They wanted to go to, the, to Miami, where the Democratic Convention was going to be, they thought that they could get very little intelligence from the Watergate. And all of a sudden, Magruder tells Liddy to, to, hit the, to hit the Watergate, the DNC and the Watergate. And uh, that made no sense whatsoever to Liddy. In a drawer, in, uh, there was a secretary, and her name was Maxie Wells. And in her drawer, which actually she locked, um, and I don't think the Democrats were that particular about paper clips and things like that. In, in a locked drawer, there was a catalog of women <clears throat> that Democratic big shots could choose from. And then they would walk a couple of blocks away and it would be at the Columbia Plaza, which was a CIA honey trap. And that's what those burglars were going for. I mean... They were at Maxie Wells' desk. They had a, a camera set up at Maxie Wells' desk. And actually, uh, one of the uh, Watergate burglars had the key to Maxie Wells' desk. And he tried to get rid of it when he was getting busted and almost got shot. Yeah, didn't so, he try to eat it at some point? Um, it, there's According differing some accounts. accounts. <laughs> yeah, there's differing accounts. But, um, but he almost got killed because he made these quick moves with that key. So obviously... Um, the burglars were going for the little Maxie Wells's black book. Yeah. You know that she ended up being the secretary to Jimmy Carter. Um, and, and, and I, I kind of arrive at the conclusion that probably the over the, the overriding faction that really sealed Nixon's fate was the Rockefeller uh, opposition to, cause that, that, that's where you're getting into really the pinnacle of, of wealth and capital power, capitalism in America and Carter was a, himself a Rockefeller man, and later his personal secretary was actually Maxine Wells, which I didn't, I think it was Jim Hogan that told me that, or it's either in the book or he told me that in an email. And then um, she ultimately sued G. Gordon Liddy. Uh, the deans were backing her um, yeah. because G. Gordon Liddy had said that she was the keeper of the black book. Right, and this, this, was, this involves Dean's wife, who in, in Secret Agenda, I think he uses a, Jim Hogan uses a, a pseudonym for her, calls her Tess. But it was really Heidi. Actually, Tess is Heidi Reichen. Yeah, Heidi Reichen, right? And that comes yeah. out. That comes out who, later. Who the identity friend, is? Who is the Madame at the Columbia Plaza? Who's a very good friend of Marine Dean? Right. So, this and was, what Liddy said is that Marine Dean's picture was in Maxie Wells's catalog. 
did he did Liddy ever see the, that catalog, or was this something that was pat that was conveyed to to Liddy? Because I didn't know, was, was, I didn't know that they ever got any. No, it was it was conveyed to Liddy. Yeah, because she was the people remarked at the time like, oh, who is this beautiful woman that's that's at all these Watergate hearings with John sitting Dean. behind her man, John Dean. Yeah, as he's looking as contrite as possible. And she had been connected to people like Joe Nestline, who were part of like the Lansky, uh, you know, the, the Lansky organization's networks. Of she Black wasn't really connected to Nestline. Um, Heidi Reichen, her very good friend, was definitely connected to Nestline. Um, yeah. But I don't I don't know if Maureen Dean was or not. Yeah, I, 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 it's been a while since I've looked over this particular aspect of it, but I recall that Maureen Dean had some relationship with people where she had lived before. Maureen um, Dean um, went out with a scout. He'd been a scout for Dallas, and then he became a scout for New Orleans, and he had mob connections. Right, right. So, I think that's, that's the And angle. actually, uh, Maureen Dean was married to two people simultaneously, and that scout was one of the people that she was was married to excellent so it's hard to depict her as like this you know america's sweetheart type character i mean well I that's really... how she's been packaged but yeah. um and and john dean uh threatens litigation um against everybody yeah but but he doesn't have the fortitude like he backed maxie wells's litigation um yeah. he didn't have the fortitude to sue uh liddy himself because liddy knew too much about uh, what John Dean's activities were. Do you think that Dean was was driving this as an anti-Nixon thing, or do you think that he was compromised in, in, in that that's why, that's why he did what he did? It's highly probable that he was just trying to save his skin in real time. Yeah. It, it, it's either that or he is affiliated with intelligence. Yeah, I know. What, it's, it's, it's one that's or the, the other. Those are, that's the same sort of set of conclusions I came to. Either he was compromised or he was an actor. But the idea of him as like the whistleblower is is the hardest one to believe. Well, he was integral to sending these burglars into the Watergate. Apparently, it's it's not this. This gets into well, he said, she said. But like, yeah, yes. I, I tend to I tend to believe you're correct about that. And I ultimately believe that Dean. Uh, when this whole thing exploded, he had to start dancing really quickly. And he was playing one uh, person of the next administration off against another. And he was saying that John Dean said, or John Mitchell, who is Nixon's attorney general, said to do this. And uh, Mitchell later called it Dean's Gambit because he was telling everyone um, like Halderman and Ehrlichman, that John Mitchell said to do this. And it was really incriminating John Mitchell. Actually, Nixon probably thought that John Mitchell sent those guys into the Watergate to li- to, uh, until the day he died. Yeah. Yeah, Nixon himself was could never make sense of this. Uh, Jeff Morley told me that the guy who was the ghostwriter for his, his memoir, uh, Frank Gannon, would talk about Nixon sometimes because they became friendly while they were in this process of putting together RN, which was Nixon's memoir. And that uh, Gannon said, if you Nixon, if he had a few whiskeys and you asked him about Watergate and who was behind it, he would say it was the same people that got Jack Kennedy. So (laughs) Nixon could never make sense of it either, except for, uh, you know, that sort of general summation, which I think is, is pretty on point. (laughs) 
I think what happened with Nixon is he completely double-crossed the military intelligence complex. Completely yeah. double-crossed them. And he started making peace with, uh, with the Russians and the Chinese. And he was willing to give up Vietnam, which was anathema to them. But there had been so much blowback with John Kennedy's assassination. And then you had Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Um, but John Kennedy's assassination really traumatized uh, the nation. And I don't know how, well, I kind of do, but the Warren Commission was obviously such a farce. And most Americans, I think it was up to over 70% of Americans distrusted. Oh, it, it got down in the 1970s after the Zapruder film was shown on television. It got down to single-digit support uh, for the, the Warren Commission conclusion. So I think if Kennedy hadn't backfired so heavily on the CIA that Nixon would have had his own little Dealey Plaza uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah, they got rid of them in a, in a different way. Um, well, when your book comes out, perhaps we'll uh, revisit this Watergate uh, spectacle, uh, you know, this whole affair, which is endlessly fascinating to, to me. Um, where can people uh, support and follow your work? I am on nickbryantnyc.com, and I also have a podcast, the Nick Bryant Podcast, so you can Google the Nick Bryant podcast, or you can go to my website at nickbryantnyc.com. And there's lots of interesting stuff for anyone who is into uh, parapolitics or wants to learn about something new. Yeah, I read some of your Watergate material, and I, I enjoyed that and appreciated it. And I recommend people go and, and check that out along with the podcast and the book. So um, I, it's been great uh, talking to you. I've admired your work for a long time. And uh I just want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Aaron, and have yourself a great day. I would like to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and mock orange for the music. In closing here, I want to bring up a couple points. First, there was some confusion here in this interview, I think on Nick's part, but I also did not have the facts ready for instant recall either. Admittedly, this is a weird and sort of darkly comical thing. It involves two members of Congress, Barney Frank and Larry Craig, two gay members of Congress with four first names between them. In the mid-1980s, Barney Frank was involved in a scandal after he became a sugar daddy of sorts for a man that he was initially paying for sex. Frank ended up getting a slap on the wrist for using his office to fix 33 of his paramours' parking tickets. The congressional effort to bring the hammer down harder on Barney Frank over all of this was led by Larry Craig, a man who, in 2007, went on to get arrested after... Quote, propositioning an undercover cop in a Minneapolis-St. Paul airport bathroom. This was the infamous wide stance fiasco that we were talking about, and I thought some of you might appreciate me clearing up the confusion from the interview. The other thing I want to add about all of this is for those who have a hard time conceptualizing how sexual blackmail could be so deeply institutionalized in our system. It seems horrific, 
But if you can set aside emotions and outrage, you can see that it is of a piece with the higher immorality that necessarily propels the U.S. empire. The U.S. global empire began with the nuking of two defenseless Japanese cities. The next year, the U.S. told the Soviets that if they did not withdraw from Iran, the U.S. would drop the bomb on them. Seven years later, the U.S. overthrew Iran's democracy and installed a murderous puppet dictatorship. U.S. imperialism went on to kill millions and millions of people in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Indonesia, Congo, Latin America, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. You can look at Gaza or the West Bank to see another side of the U.S. global empire. Another aspect is perhaps the most horrific of all. Largely as a result of U.S.-imposed systemic economic polarization, 25,000 people die of starvation and malnutrition every day. That's over 9 million a year. As sociologist Peter Phillips points out, a 25% tax on the wealth of billionaires, if efficiently distributed, would likely eliminate hunger in the world permanently. Elsewhere, I have heard that a fraction of the Pentagon budget, if reallocated, could also virtually eliminate these 9 million plus annual deaths from starvation and malnutrition. The problem is that all of this human misery and death is great for the hegemony and profit margins of the U.S.-led global oligarchy. For oligarchs like Bill Gates and Larry Fink and Jeff Bezos and Jamie Dimon, these aren't problems to be solved. They are necessary preconditions for reproducing the oligarch's dominance over humanity. When you grasp all of this, the Franklin scandal and the Epstein saga are all too easy to understand. Slavery in the U.S. was a moral catastrophe. It shocks the conscience to think about the violence done to American slaves, including the 4 million who were enslaved at the start of the Civil War. Now think about the 9 million people who die from the structural violence intentionally imposed by the hegemon of global capitalism, the USA. Is not the U.S. empire the great systemic evil of our time? Thank you for helping us mind the darkness.